you know, a lot of assets are recorded at lower of cost or market, meaning, you know, whatever you, it was extremely conservative, uh, generally speaking. So cryptocurrencies were an intangible asset and they were recorded at the lower of either uh, whatever you paid for them or the current market value, but they were not marked up in the way that, let's say, if a company owned a uh, you know, some publicly traded stock or some publicly traded bonds, some kind of securities that have a, an easily observable market value, those are recorded at fair value. And this, it sounds like this rule is stepping us towards that fair value, which is presumably a win for companies that are holding or considering holding crypto and, and obviously investors in those companies as well. But as you said, it, it, it will be volatile. Welcome to The Early Advantage, where we find investing issues that need to be undressed, and we undress them. And this week's issue du jour, or issue du week, I should say du jour is day, right? This week's issue du week is crypto accounting. It's kind of been off the radar. Now it's suddenly on the radar. There are a lot of uh, articles, especially in crypto media, about how these new fair value accounting uh, standards or changes, uh, we'll get, unpack that in a minute, are going to change the game for crypto investors as companies hold more crypto. And this affects you if you're one of the 20% of uh, Americans or uh, Britons that hold cryptocurrency as an investment. Joining me, though, to help unpack or undress this topic is Alan Jagelinzer, who heads the accounting faculty department at Cambridge University. So, Alan, thanks for being here. Thanks, James. Good to see you again. All right. So right off the bat, right from the gate, we we have this. Uh, I, we were talking before we were filming about uh, what exactly this rule is, or not even a rule, I guess. And that's that's my question. We there are all these articles now saying fair value accounting has come to crypto, and this is under uh, U.S. generally accepted accounting principles. There is a separate standard, IFRS, which applies to 140-ish countries, uh, more of a mm -hmm. principles-based system. Uh, we'll talk about that in a second. But right now, like. Is this really a a rule change, or like how how definitive is how definitive is, is it now? So there's kind of a, a weird history with crypto and accounting financial reporting for uh, crypto going back to even 2016 when the Australian Accounting Standards Board was looking at it. Um, at that point, it wasn't really that hot, but I can say as of today, we really still have the old infrastructure for crypto. It has not yet changed. I think what we saw recently was a very clear communication of an intention to make a change forthcoming. And I, I can explain a little bit about why we think we need a change um, and whether FASB is going or about roughly when FASB might implement it and then whether the International Accounting Standards Board might follow suit. So I'm happy to unpack all that. Sure, sure. And, and just if someone's watching this saying this sounds like, you know, accounting nuance, how does this really affect me? Well, in a normal market, I mean, not a speculative mania market, a normal market, financial reporting is the, the major information piece for investors. I mean, that's what they use. And if you if you're just running a stock screen on Yahoo Finance, I mean, you're going to use, you know, reported numbers. So the numbers that a company reports do matter. And, and per a, an article by Forbes, MicroStrategy, which like Tesla and a few other companies has been kind of at the vanguard of buying crypto as a, an alternative to, to holding cash. Uh, I'm just reading from this. They, they, they bought an average cost basis of $30,000 per Bitcoin um, in Q1 of 2022. They reported $131 million loss when in real life, they would have had a, or without the crypto aspect, the Bitcoin aspect, they would have had a $39 million gain. So in other words, they had $170 million Bitcoin impairment loss. 
And here's the thing, and maybe I'm, I'm speculating here, but the article said, look, there was a big price drop on the, on the day of this announcement. And theoretically, theoretically, the market had always known the price of Bitcoin. The market had always known how much Bitcoin MicroStrategy held, or at least approximated that. So, you know, was it really all, all the, the loss was from, or the, the stock price drop was just from disappointment in, in the company's operations? We don't know, but but I would argue that clearer financial reporting would would help in this kind of situation. And I'm guessing you'd agree with me. Is that is that the case or not? Yeah, I agree. So so fundamentally, if you think in terms of crypto, crypto is inherently volatile. It is. It's just inherently volatile, as is any kind of, uh, if you will, like equity security. There's a lot of volatility there. And typically, when you think in terms of, for example, an equity instrument, we typically report it at fair value and all the changes will fluctuate on the balance sheet, but we'll also see some changes in income loosely defined, whether it's net income, profit or loss, we call it here, or or other comprehensive income, the volatility shows up there. Crypto came along and it, and it became confusing because it didn't meet the definitions in the financial reporting framework for currency, nor did it meet the definitions for um, securities. And I'm, I'm actually going to quote here a little bit from a summary of a 2016 paper written by the Australian Accounting Standards Board. And they said they were looking at the literature, this is under IFRS, to evaluate whether it should be considered a cash or cash equivalent or a financial asset or an intangible asset or an inventory asset. And so, so it's trying to fit it within the categorizations of the existing rules. And it kind of didn't fall into the categorizations by definition where we normally apply fair value reporting. So when it doesn't apply, for example, into a financial instrument category, even though it has characteristics somewhat similar, then it defaults into an intangible asset. And we sort of back reverse engineered our way, I think, into calling it an intangible asset and then applying intangible asset rules to it which pretty much only captures the downside of a value change, but not the upside of a value change. I hope that- Got it. So, you know, for someone just coming into this, you know, accounting discussion, you know, a lot of assets are recorded at lower of cost or market, meaning, you know, whatever you, it was extremely conservative, uh, generally speaking. So cryptocurrencies were an intangible asset and they were recorded at the lower of either uh, whatever you paid for them or the current market value, but they were not marked up in the way that, Let's say if a company owned, uh, you know, some publicly traded stock or some publicly traded bonds, some kind of securities that have a, an easily observable market value, those are recorded at fair value. And this, it sounds like this rule is stepping us towards that fair value, which is presumably a win for companies that are holding or considering holding crypto, and and obviously investors in those companies as well. But as you said, it it, it will be volatile uh, because you know these things move around quite a lot too. Yeah, so I, I I I don't view it in terms of wins or losses, except for trying to clear to provide clarity on the fundamental economic decisions that managers have made. So if managers have made a decision to hold an instrument or to hold a um, an asset that is inherently volatile, then that volatility should be presented to investors so they are aware of it. It's not a good or bad choice. It's just an awareness that we've got a long position in a volatile instrument. Um, and so trying to capture that volatility, I think, is important, which is why if you chose, for example, to, to, to go long in Tesla or go long in Meta, 
um, there's fluctuations daily in that price, and that should be reflected into not only the balance sheet, but some form of unrealized income gain or loss. So we're, the FASB clearly signaled that it's aware that the existing rules are sort of asymmetrically pulling fair value. As you mentioned, it's, it, it will typically bring um, impairments into the assets, but it won't sort of record the other side of it. Um, currently, and that is problematic because, as you know, if you know if the price declines, then then the reversals under U.S. GAAP aren't being represented. Let alone the increases above the original basis won't also be represented, and that can be confusing. It can cause um, a lack of clarity about the actual financial status of 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 this particular position. So what I interpret is that the FASB most recently in October, uh, um, maybe a week ago, was trying to communicate an intention to move forward on a on a on a accounting structure that would look very similar to, for example, an available for sale equity instrument, which we currently handle. That was my my interpretation of what they clarified for us. And what about the IFRS? Uh, you know, you know this much much better than I do. But obviously, the the FASB in the U.S. uses lower of cost or market, generally speaking. Uh, and once you have an impairment, you have an impairment. Um, IFRS it, it has the same process, right? But is it easier under IFRS standards to unimpair an asset? And would that be a little bit more positive for a company that has Bitcoin, or is, is that still a far far distance so from this is market? also part of this is also part of why I, why I love teaching IFRS and USGAP because there are differences, and this is one of the key differences. IFRS is structured a little bit differently in that um, the probability of impairment on a non goodwill type intangible asset is higher mathematically than it would be under USGAP. So U.S. GAAP, and I'm not going to go into the technical details around the rules, but if you're holding a, an intangible asset, not goodwill, we'll ignore goodwill for the moment. So if you're holding an intangible asset and the the rules upon which one might evaluate whether an impairment has occurred are, are harder to reach. In other words, mm -hmm. the likelihood of impairment under U.S. GAAP is lower for most intangibles. But IFRS will trigger more impairments, but it also allows for a reversal of a, of a prior impairment. So for any intangible asset, you can undo a prior impairment if you can articulate why. If if the economic conditions support a reversal, then you can do a reversal. U.S. GAAP does not allow for reversals just by default. So right now, IFRS also characterizes, my interpretation is it also characterizes crypto as intangible assets. You can find a situation where you will have to impair it because of a loss of value, but subsequently you may have an opportunity to reverse the prior impairment. It's still limiting though. That is not a pure fair value model because you can only reverse it up to where you started fundamentally. Ah, okay. So, so if the value, so if you started record, if you reported, if you bought, purchased it at 40, you impair it to 20, you can reverse the impairment back to 40, but you can't bring it up to 60 without a fair value model. And so now U.S. GAAP says, well, we're going to go to a fair value model. We haven't implemented it yet. They still have to go, I think, my understanding is they still have to go through their entire process, which includes exposure documents, comments. So it's probably several months out before this would actually be implemented. And then there's always a transition or, or a start date, if you will. Um, 
So we're, we're several months out, I think, from what I understand, before this is actually implemented in FASB in US GAAP. I have not seen any evidence that IFRS is planning to move this direction, but I suspect they're, they're watching it. Um, and I, you know, without any insight to their deliberations, I, I think that this makes a lot of sense and I would expect them to move there as well at some point, but I haven't seen any indication that they're actually actively pursuing it at the moment. In terms of what this means, one one of the unique aspects of crypto, or is uh, maybe it's not so unique, but more more prevalent is, you know, you got a few big cryptos like Ethereum and and Bitcoin, and you got a bazillion little tiny ones. Um, w- would it be possible to abuse this rule in this sense? And I think we've already seen some instances like this, uh, not a not rule abuse, but where let's say you have a thinly traded crypto, uh, somebody acquires a bunch of it, uh, and then maybe the CFO and the CEO of the company, you know, trade back and forth for $1 for $2 for, you know, and, and drive the price up, uh, you know, using a small amount of sacrificial money that might be well worth it if they artificially reprice, you know, their big base. Like, is that a, a real worry in this kind of situation or, or, or I, not? I, I mean, it would take a lot of machination to get there. I mean, a lot of uh, collusion, perhaps. I mean, this actually, this discussion falls into the categorization of how one actually determines what fair value is. And there's three levels, level one, two, three. I don't know whether you've talked about that with your audience, but level one is the purest form, which is an actively traded market, but it's under a liquidity assumption. So it's a heavily traded market. And this is where you'd find Meta, Tesla, any of the... um, so, So if it's if it's a traded market, lots of third party, very difficult to manipulate the actual market, then those inputs are, if you will, arguably the purest. And so in that scenario, and I think this is what you're getting at is the lower liquidity maybe could be manipulated more. That's when we move into the lower levels, level two and level three. And that's where we actually start working on estimation and and there's some risk. And I I guess the pushback to that is you'd have to have somebody really actively colluding and then you'd have to have a pretty effective audit process, internal controls process to kind of step back and evaluate the credibility of the values that are coming in. Um, you know, anybody who understands the valuation is is iffy could actually probably penetrate that pretty quickly. I, I think in terms, I have a case around Canadian cannabis that at some point we should talk about because the publicly traded cannabis markets, uh, particularly when the case was written, and I worked with an analyst up in Toronto who actually helped write the thing the prices, the valuations that they were using were just primarily spreadsheets internally is what mm-hmm. I understand. And so that's where one has to kind of go, I- I'm not sure I trust the fair values that they're reporting because they were a lot of management's internal estimates. Um, I- I- I'll, n- I'll never say it couldn't happen because people are creative in our field. And when there's money to be made, people will be creative with how they Never, never underestimate the creativity of somebody who's trying to con the system. Um, but ideally, if it's thinly traded, if you know that it's not liquid, I think then there are ways in which one could actually kind of try to push on that a little bit. Um, the other thing too, I'll, I'll say this too. One of the things that's important to note is that the FASB is, as I expected they might, the FASB is not taking any gains. So these are unrealized gains. So hypothetically, under their proposal, if you started at 40 and you're going up to 100, that is a paper gain, right? That's an unrealized gain. 
that paper gain is not going to go to your PL to your net income. That paper gain is going to go to the other comprehensive. Oh, CI, yeah. So maybe that protects a little bit, particularly if somebody's doing evaluation based on traditional notion of net income. Um, and so, so to some degree, you would have to have an expectation that one, you could manipulate the price to begin with. And two, that investors care about the asset valuation on the balance sheet, which is artificially high, as opposed to the phantom income that's being reported in other comprehensive income. I, I hope, that's a great I hope point. And yeah, so somebody's screening on Yahoo Finance for you know net income margin of blank, whatever. Like this would not; these swings in crypto value would not likely would not affect that because they'd be separated in OCI or other comprehensive income. Yeah, that's that's yeah. A, that's the FASB proposal. And independently, when I when I teach this in class, we talk about what should FASB and IASB do because I think at least in the courses I've taught, we all agree that the existing, our opinions, of course, the existing model for crypto doesn't really capture the essence, the economic essence. So so we've long, I've long been advocating ever since I saw this um, 2016 stuff that default into traditional intangible assets is the wrong placement for it. And, and for me, I always thought that they should be changing the definition because it, it seemed a little bit more similar to how we're handling other financial instruments. So I expected them to do what I saw FASB rep, uh, recommending. So final question, Alan, uh, going back to your, your picking out of my use of the word when, um, the crypto media, the crypto crowd, which probably hoping hoping for a win these days, uh, crypto has been a little rough this year, uh, has been calling it a win or has been saying this is going to encourage more companies more corporate treasurers to to buy crypto uh, with, with companies' cash, uh, and, and therefore crypto could be a good investment because now we've possibly you know going to open up the floodgates to this this swarm of institutional purchasers. Uh, how how true do you think that is? I mean, I guess it, it could make it logistically easier on one level for fair value, but again, as you said, you know there, there's pros and cons here. I, so, so I always make it very clear to my audience that there is an economic decision and then there's the public reporting of the economic decision. So in order for crypto to be a good decision, whoever's making the choice to invest long in crypto has to have some underlying belief that there's an economic rationale behind it, that there's some value to holding what is unambiguously a volatile asset. Um, and, you know, we all have choices of volatile assets. We could all buy a bunch of lotto tickets. We could all buy a bunch of stock of company X. We could buy a portfolio of, of this. So, so there's the economic choice to get in there. And then there's the public reporting of the economic risk. And so what's changing here or proposed to be changed is, is the latter. So, so you need two things to happen. You need to encourage the economic decision, and then you need to allow for that pure communication or the purest of the communication we can provide to, to come through. This is actually helping support that latter piece. Would it be more amenable? Maybe if, if, if somebody has already made, so if I'm a chief financial officer and I've already committed to owning crypto because it's a good economic choice, then I may prefer the fact that the upside is reportable. And, and that may be a benefit because if I only get to report bad news, you know, that's kind of a downer. I mean, presumably I made a decision because I wanted 
either to speculate or there's some underlying rationale and I want to communicate the upside piece. So if, if, if it's, if it's that you want to be able to communicate the brilliance of the clearly risky choice to be in a portfolio long in this, then I guess I could see how this would be valuable in that, in that regard. But it, it, all it's doing in my mind is, is more clearly articulating the risk somebody's already made. So more of maybe if someone's on the fence, more of a, a topple of the one side kind of thing. Uh, it sounds like you're, you're, you're saying it's not likely to be the, the tail wagging the dog. And in general, you know, it's kind of a conceptual, at least for me as an investor, it's kind of a conceptual red flag when someone, a company wants to do something economic for an accounting reason. Um, you know, that's, that's usually the, the wrong direction. So it, it sounds like you're kind of saying the same thing. Well, I mean, okay, if somebody, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, I can see some scenarios and perhaps there's, there's these one-off scenarios where I'm willing to, 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 to take the economic risk on crypto, much like I would on any, any other risky asset. I'm willing to take that risk. What I'm not willing to do is report only the bad news. Like, you know, it's like, I got to be super negative all the time in the public and it's not reflective of the decision. And I guess if you're worried about even career concerns, you don't want to, you don't want to take a position where the probability is quite high of a negative, you know, I'm, the public will view this negatively with a higher probability than they'll view it positively because the reporting rule is putting it in that frame. So I can see where if you're worried about the reputation concerns about the economic choice you've made, then perhaps this makes sense to be able to showcase the entire array of outcomes. And so um, from that perspective, I guess you could call it a win. I don't view these, I just view this as communicating decisions managers have made for economic choice. And, you know, fair enough. It's fair that reporting gets better over the, over time. And it, it seems like this is a step in that direction. Um, Alan Jaglins are informative as always, and always great to talk to you. Maybe next time we talk about that Canadian cannabis stuff. I would guys, love to talk about the Canadian <laughs> cannabis and my cat is dying to come in on this webcast. So awesome. You, you can let him, him or her in if, if you want. Um, and, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, always interesting stuff. Uh, and thanks to you guys as always for watching it all. Hi there. I'm Brian Christopher. I write the follow the money investment newsletter published by South Bank Research. And in this segment of the early advantage, we talk about wish lists, how to locate shares we would like to own in the right environment. This week's topic is one I enjoy, so I hope you will too. Have you ever heard people debate the question, what is better, dividends or share buybacks? Most of you are familiar with these terms, but just in case, dividends are excess profits paid by a company to its shareholders, often on a regular basis, like quarterly. And investors like money, so many like dividends. Buyback is when a company uses its own money to buy back its shares. It's best when those shares are then retired. When they're retired, they are no longer outstanding. This helps a company because it can increase its earnings per share. As you can see here, if a company has 20 shares outstanding, buys back two shares from the market, and retires them, the company now has 18 shares outstanding. If that same company's profit was $18, its earnings per share, when it had 20 shares outstanding, 
was 90 cents per share. That's $18 divided by 20 shares outstanding. When the share count falls to 18, the company now makes a dollar per share. $1.80 divided by the 18 shares. A 10% reduction in the share count led to an 11.1% increase in earnings. Does that make sense? It's a simple example, but reducing the denominator of the fraction increases the result. So which is better, dividends or buybacks? The answer? It depends. Many people have an opinion on this, and people on both sides of the argument can be right. Some like income, some like owning a bigger piece of the pie. Technically, an investor in a stock that doesn't pay a dividend could quote-unquote create a dividend by selling a couple shares of his holding. He could do so each year if he wanted, or each quarter. Yes, the tax consequences might not be the same as they would for a dividend, but I mention this as a way to differentiate between the two. That said, an investor who receives a dividend couldn't buy back shares. He couldn't reduce the share count, as you can do with a share buyback. Plus, if you're lucky, you'll find a stock that does both. Well, maybe not lucky, if you, uh, if, you, if you search well enough. Barclays, B-A-R-C, on the London Stock Exchange does. And it's quite cheap today as well, trading with a price-to-earnings of 4.9 and at 0.42 times book value. It also pays a more than 4% dividend yield, and buybacks have reduced the share count by nearly 5% since the end of 2020. Barclays is cheap, but full disclosure, if you bought it a decade ago, you would have less money today than at the start of the period. As interest rates rise, though, watch this one. Banks benefit from rising rates. Now, the rest of this video will be about share buybacks. We'll talk about dividends in another video. When we're creating a wish list of stocks, buying a company, or more specifically, investing in a management team that knows how to buy back shares well can be super lucrative. For one, you need to have excess profits to buy back shares. If you hear about a company that borrows money to buy back shares, be cautious. It isn't guaranteed to be a failure, but they have to do it right. They have to get it right and many times they have to get lucky. Consider borrowing a billion dollars to buy back shares, then experiencing a stock market like 2022. The key to buybacks, in my opinion, is also the first part of a common investment strategy. Buy low. How about an example? A company that knows how to do share buybacks is Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. Its tickers are BRK slash A and BRK slash B on the New York Stock Exchange. The reason why Buffett is so good at buybacks is because he doesn't like to do them. In fact, the first time he bought back any shares was 2018. Considering he took control of the company in 1965, that's kind of a big deal. Berkshire's initial policy was to buy back shares only if they were 1.1 times book value or less. Book value equals assets minus liabilities, so Berkshire would only buy shares if the market cap was less than 1.1 times that amount. In December 2012, Berkshire, Berkshire raised the multiple to 1.2 times. 
and Berkshire eventually loosened the policy a bit further. It said it would only buy back shares if they were priced below Berkshire's intrinsic value. Intrinsic value is what an asset is actually worth. Adding that language gave them more flexibility in their share repurchases. And buy they did. As you can see, Berkshire has repurchased $62 billion of shares since 2018. That includes more than $24 billion in each of 2020 and 2021. You can find this number in the financing activities section of a company cash flow statement. A decrease in capital stock is a share buyback. An increase in capital stock is a share issuance. Warren Buffett said that when stock can be bought below a business's value, it is probably the best use of cash. Or, in other words, buy low. The problem with stock buybacks is many times companies, i.e. management teams, don't pay attention, enough attention, to how much they pay for their shares. Most CEOs aren't Warren Buffett, though. When you're investing, price is important. If a stock falls 10% one day for no reason, buying at that lower level increases your future return. Similarly, when a company buys back shares for 10% less, it gets more shares for a given amount of money. It retires more shares, and its earnings per share goes up more. Remember my previous example. Buying back 10% of the shares increased earnings by more than 10%. That's math. But if the management of a company you own or want to own buys back shares, it is better if you can be comfortable that they don't pay too much. For a stock that goes up all the time, this doesn't matter. The price you are paying will be less than its future price. But we've learned recently that all stocks can fall, so be inquisitive. It's best if your management team articulates when it buys shares and that they stick to their logic like Buffett does. I'll be watching the upcoming third quarter earnings reports to learn which companies took advantage of the recent drop in prices to buy back some of their shares. Here's one stock that stuck out to me as I screened for buyback activity. The black numbers on the chart are the average quarterly share price. The orange numbers represent total buybacks in the quarter in millions of dollars. AbbVie, A-B-B-V on the New York Stock Exchange, is simply executing at a very high level. In general, we would like to see companies that buy back more shares when they're cheap and pass on buybacks when the share price is inflated. But if share prices just rise and don't really stop, the buybacks will be effective regardless. AbbVie's share price is back to about $144 as I record this, so they're in the vicinity of their average for the first half of the year. This one's a bit more controversial. Again, the black numbers are the average quarterly share price. The orange numbers represent total buybacks in the quarter. This company, Flex Steel Industries, FLXS on the NASDAQ, has made furniture since 1893. Its brands are Flex Steel and Home Styles, and it's small. Its market cap is less than $100 million. I present it to you to highlight the smartness of its buybacks. It does a solid job of passing on buybacks when the value isn't there. 
when the average quarterly share price zoomed higher in the second quarter of 2021, Flex Deals management reduced its buybacks. Then, when shares fell this year, it bought more. Flex Deal highlights the risks well. It's tough to get this perfect. Even though the management team has done a solid job of waiting to buy for value, shares can still fall more. And FlexSteel recently received a $20.80 per share buyout offer that it called opportunistic. Its board turned it down, and shares then fell further. The furniture industry that it's in is facing some headwinds today, and shares have fallen to about $14. I wouldn't be surprised if management takes a break on its buybacks until there's more clarity in the industry, in the economy. Plus, FlexSteel has more than a 4% yield, so shareholders are still paid while they wait. If it buys more shares, if management makes the decision to buy more shares, that'll tell us a lot about its confidence in its operations. FlexSteel is a wait and see for me. To be clear, these aren't recommendations. Of the other stocks I presented, there's no doubt AbbVie's performance has been the most impressive, but... Bloomberg expects its huge Humira rheumatoid arthritis drug will see a drop in sales in 2023. And Barclays is the cheapest. Thank you for watching.